Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you hear those words, you can feel good knowing that. State Farm is there to help you feel supported with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. Now, let me tell you, girl, I don't got a boat, a motorcycle, or an RV, but State Farm covers my home and my car. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help protect your future by helping you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And you know what? Getting insurance can be so intimidating because you don't know exactly what you need. So having an agent that could help you with each step makes it so much easier. Girl, I feel you on that. So when things get complicated and you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Maybe you like to handle things in person or on the phone with your local agent, or you prefer to do it on statefarm.com or on the award-winning app. State Farm lets you do things your way. I personally am the type of gal that likes to do things through an app. It just makes it more easier than going in person or hopping on a call. So I love that they have that option available. Girl, I like to use an app too. I'm not trying to pull up a person or or a call because I'm way too, I have too much social anxiety for that. I'm trying to do it on the app. So that's why I'm here with State Farm. And that is why, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And I realized that I'm one of the only comedians in the world that can right now perform in front of live audience, not in Zoom. And I just saw the most diverse uh, group of people. Everyone, Palestinians from all walks of the Palestinian society, Israelis from all walks of the Israeli society. I was experiencing and witnessing, you know, radical compassion. People uh, are very excited and happy to see that young people came together to respond and uh, young people from different walks of life. On Saturday, we realized that we had produced uh, 10,000 bottles of these hand sanitizers. The more we can recognize that we're all in this together, that there's only one enemy, that enemy is a virus, the safer we'll all be and the better we'll get out of this. And that to me is perhaps the biggest lesson of hope that we do have the ability to work together and to get things done and to recognize that we're all connected and global solidarity is something that benefits everyone. This is the Global Goals Cast, the podcast that shows how we can change the world. This episode, Recovering from the Pandemic. Recovery, such a simple word, yet it contains so much, both our personal and family stories and the challenges of communities and countries. Yes, really all of us everywhere. We're going to talk about recovery from different perspectives. We will hear from Dr. Tom Frieden, one of the most important public health experts in the United States, who will explain how to box in coronavirus so that we can begin to resume life and work. And we will also visit Africa to talk with health workers who are still bracing for the worst of the pandemic, but find a moment to think about life after this passes. 
which is exactly what experts advise. Plan for recovery even as the crisis surrounds you. We will hear all of this, and when we come back, we will speak with an old friend of Global Goals. No, she's a young friend. Okay, a long time friend. There you go. The Israeli, <laughs> the Israeli comedian Noam Schuster, who will share her remarkable story of contracting COVID-19 and how the virus brought Arabs and Jews together in a quarantine hotel in Jerusalem. We have this like external thread that is the disease and we're all sick. So Jews are not getting more than Arabs and Arabs are not getting more than Jews. And we're just like, we are operating in a way that is detached from the power dynamics that exist outside of the hotel. And I'm like, all my political knowledge and awareness just went to the garbage I was experiencing and witnessing, you know, radical compassion and something that I haven't seen before with people. And I'm like, why do we have to go through a global pandemic for us, for me, for us to see these, these things? Noam Schuster at the Corona Hotel right after this. This episode of Global Goalscast is brought to you by MasterCard. MasterCard is dedicated to building an inclusive world in which the digital economy works for everyone, everywhere. We have seen some fantastic examples of companies that we've worked with pivoting their own solutions to address the crisis. Thanks also to CBS News Digital and Universal Production Music, and to BSR, working with business to create a just and sustainable world. Welcome back. One Young World introduced us to Noam Schuster, and I remember her so well. Me too. That was one of my very favorite episodes of Global Goals Cast. Mm -hmm. Three female comics who use their humor to break down stereotypes. An Irish lesbian with OCD. A former investment banker originally from India who now lives in London. And Noam. You'll recall that Noam is an Israeli who turned to comedy when she became so frustrated trying to use more traditional diplomatic tools to get Arabs and Jews to at least coexist. Her comedy includes a finely sharpened sense of irony. So when she saw the invite from the Harvard Divinity School through its religion, conflict, and peace initiative... Edie, uh, let her tell her story. They approached me to come up with a creative project that has to do with the Middle East, reimagining Israel-Palestine, all of those topics. As a comedian, the first thing that came to my mind is to offer them uh, to develop a one-woman show. And I called it the Coexistence My Ass, <laughs> which is a cynical way of, uh, you know, looking at everything here, uh, what I love to do. And I got an email back saying, Noam, we would love to have you developing a Coexistence My Ass at Harvard. Everything was going amazing. This year was a dream year for me. I had um, a comedian uh, uh, called Maz Jubrani, who was one of the, you know, the biggest Iranian-American comedians that I admire producing my show. He put me on stages uh, like the Wilbur Theater in Boston and the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. And then the Kennedy Center booked my show for a premiere in May. I was accepted to HBO Women in Comedy Festival. And everything was going so smoothly. And then... What happened to you happened to me, to all of us. Our emails started looking like a cancellation festival. <laughs> and I realized that I need to make a decision. I have nothing to do in Boston anymore. Everything is canceled. Tomorrow is canceled. <laughs> and what do I do? What do I do? So I was, I was mourning and I was crying. And 
and documenting myself, you know, going through all of this and realizing that right now, Benjamin Netanyahu is a better option than Donald Trump. <laughs> Usually people from the Middle East want to go to America, but with the Corona crisis, people from the Middle East wanted to run away from America back to the Middle East. I got on a plane to Tel Aviv and there was no way to be 100% safe on this journey. I immediately quarantined myself. I did not say hello to my parents just from afar. And four days after I started developing the symptoms and my goodness, I don't wish this to my biggest enemies. I had all the symptoms. I was really, really suffering. The worst day was uh, losing a lot of oxygen and not being able to breathe and ambulance came and took me to the hospital. And you know, I'm 33, I'm healthy, I have nothing in my medical background. I'm not a smoker, I'm, I'm not a joker, I'm not a midnight talker, <laughs> just kidding. But <laughs> in the hospital, they gave me 24 hours of, of oxygen and then I was released to a Corona hotel. <laughs> That is so crazy. So what is a Corona Hotel? Oh my goodness. It's a hotel that is managed by the, the Ministry of Defense, by the army. And so once you're admitted into this hotel with a bunch of sick people, you cannot leave until you heal. They quarantine us in this hotel. They contain us. And ironically, all the sick people together in this hotel are allowed to socialize, to hug, to do whatever they want. Well, the healthy people outside are lonely and separated. And so I was thrown in this hotel, straight into a Zumba class in the lobby. <laughs> and I realized that I'm one of the only comedians in the world that can right now perform in the lobby in front of live audience, not in Zoom. And so I very, very quickly realized that I'm in a very special place, maybe one of the most unique places in the world right now as people are separated. And, and I just saw the most diverse uh, group of people, ultra-Orthodox religious Who Jews. Who was there? Everyone, Palestinians from all walks of the Palestinian society, Israelis from all walks of the Israeli society. And all my life I've been part of dialogue groups and peace camp and I grew up in this coexistence community and I speak Arabic also. I, I, I do comedy in Hebrew and Arabic and suddenly all these organic connections are happening, not artificially because we have this like external thread that is the disease and we're all sick. So Jews are not getting more than Arabs and Arabs are not getting more than Jews. And we're just like, we are operating in a way that is detached from the power dynamics that exist outside of the hotel. And I'm like, all my political knowledge and awareness just went to the garbage I was experiencing and witnessing, you know, radical compassion and something that I haven't seen before with people. And I'm like, why do we have to go through a global pandemic for us, for me, for us to see these, these things? And, you know, and then people are cynical and they're telling me, oh, it's not the real life, blah, blah, blah. But I couldn't look for problems from under the carpet. I couldn't see any racism. I couldn't see any, anything toxic. People were just really taking care of each other. And I was like, damn, What's happening? There's going to be like peace now. What am I going to do stand up about? 
<laughs> but luckily this place provided me with a lot of materials and really the show also was um it was really i mean i hardly had a voice it was very hard for me to project because there we didn't have any equipment or something the only spaces available for us are our rooms uh, the lobby and a balcony so it's not like the entire hotel and the spa and getting massages and stuff right everything <laughs> it's it's like a war zone And did it work? How, how was the show? Did, did everybody laugh? Did, did both sides of the audience laugh? When you're stuck together sick in a hotel, you are hungry and thirsty for everything and obviously for laughter. And it was great. People were laughing. People were happy. You know, it brings people together. I was kind of introducing myself to the audience and I was saying how much I've been through a hard time because I left the U.S. and I was supposed to put on a show there in Hebrew, Arabic and English. And then I asked, is there someone speaking in Arabic in the audience? And a few uh, audience members raised their hands and asked, where are you from? And they told me a name of a village where uh, there are cases there that supermarket cashiers got uh, half of the village sick. So I said, oh, did you hear about these cashiers that got all these people sick? And then she raised her hand and she said, that's me. <laughs> I was like, damn, Noam, it's like God told you, whoa, Harvard, Kennedy Center, blah, blah, blah. Come, 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 come back home. I'm going to get you sick, but I'm going to get you skinny and famous. And you're going to be the only comedian performing in the lobby. <laughs> so trying to look at the positive side of this. And what about your thoughts about coexistence, my ass, now? Well, that's a good question. I'm going to have to sit with all of this, like, mushroom trip that I've been through, sit with all these materials and see where I was, where I am now, also what's happening in the real outside world. But I know one thing for sure. I'm not going to look for problems where they don't exist. I'm going to try to look at the beauty and really the uniqueness of what I saw and take out the funny parts from it and try to give strong messages to people and see what we can learn from it and what we can take from it. I think I dropped some of the cynicism that I had beforehand. And I, I will try to really grab this experience and try to give people some of the good when it exists. So what do you think recovery looks like for you? So for me, recovery would be about storytelling, about telling people, you know, what I've been through, about... Uh, telling people the good things that I saw and also uh, highlighting the challenges that come with it. I was in the real world of the struggle to recover from this virus and I feel like a survivor now. I got a call from the hospital telling me that I developed immunity and I can donate. Do you call it plasma also in, uh, in English? Yeah, exactly. Plasma, the antibodies. So it has to be two weeks after recovery. So I'm, I already have an appointment to go and uh, thought that I, uh, my body developed uh, uh, you know, antibodies that can go and now save other people. It's a feeling that I can't describe in words. It's hard to thank a disease and it's hard to thank a very, very devastating moment for all of us. But, you know, I'm Jewish. We've been through a lot. <laughs> Today's Holocaust Remembrance Day in Israel. I have to look at the good. I have to see a light going forward. It's, uh, it's in my blood. It, it, you know, aside from the antibodies, <laughs> it's, it's in my blood. <laughs> 
So it's amazing because I, I was watching one of your YouTube videos that was saying as you were leaving, it was like collective circumcision, right? How does that feel now? Wow. I mean, wh when I said that it's collective circumcision, I said that, you know, in Judaism, the circumcision has to be about a bond, you know, a brit, we call it, a, a bond with God. Oh, my goodness. Did I feel God during this whole process? Oh, yes. They, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a huge religious person, but I do believe, you know, in a higher something, you know, and I felt it. I, I felt like something was leading. It was like, you are the chosen, strong woman that is going to be in this experience and, you know, go tell the world. I felt it very, very strongly. You know me a little bit, Eddie. You know that I feel a huge responsibility on my shoulders to humankind, to Jews, to Arabs, to to healing parts of our tra traumatic pasts. And I couldn't avoid it even now. I, I was like the UN ambassador of the hotel. <laughs> so I'm taking it all with me. I have no choice. The chosen people, man. That's what you are. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Oh, amazing. This virus is so powerful, so horribly powerful. But so are these lessons that we have to take and embrace. And I know, Claudia, that this is very close to home for you. So how is your mom? It's horrible. It is, I was telling you before, this is probably the worst time in my life. There is nothing I can do. There is no power. There is no Grinch that I can do with my hands that tremble of uh, not able to be doing anything. And 16 days hospitalized. And after that day, the virus just took one aggressive turn and put her in intensive care where she has been for eight days. So she's in a ventilator prone, meaning upside down where she's uh, sedated and just fighting. My entire life since uh, eight days have been devoted to trying to help finding. I know more about like the drugs of this pandemic than anything. I, I know what is exciting doctors all around the world. I went to talk to doctors in China, in Italy, in Spain, and I'm seeing how this knowledge uh, is incredibly useful for people in Mexico, Latin America, and how important it is going to come to Africa. So the more that we as a humanity can come together, the way that I am pretty much doing it myself, and not only learning, but also passing and connecting doctors from the States to Mexico, where my mother is, and ideally opening doors and deals so that pharma companies that are trying products in, in one country can try them in others. I think that the last conversation I had with my mom was talking about what we were doing with the Hispanic Response and Recovery Plan and hearing her say like, but what really are you saying? What are you doing? And she was like, and I was like, well, you know, we're trying to put information and organize, well, what really are you doing? And I was like, well, I think trying to get a number of people moving from fear to action, from fear to hope. And she said, okay, that's a good job. Keep doing that. And so I have to be the first teacher of my own lessons. So I'm trying to do exactly that, moving from the paralyzed fear that I have to action and trying to be educated about this and trying to share that knowledge with other people. And what this program is, is about doing a plan for recovery. That's exactly where my mind is. Mm. And so Claudia, I am really pulling for your mom and I know that everyone is, so I want you to know that I think about you mm. and her every day. 
Thank you. Everyone is feeling some kind of stress, whether they are personally affected or not. But in the developed world, one of the biggest strains right now arises as countries begin to contain the pandemic. That spurs the desire to get back to work and to life as we once knew it. But the wrong moves could unleash the virus all over again. We all need to understand this better because we're likely to be living in this tension for quite a while, Edie. We turn to Dr. Tom Frieden. He was the head of CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and before that, he ran New York City Health Department. Now he runs a global non-for-profit called Resolve to Save Lives. Their mission is to save millions of people in poor and middle-income countries. How have you found this whole experience, Tom? It's surreal um, and it's horrifying. I was born in New York City. I did my medical school training here. I did my internal medicine training here, my public health training here. I was an epidemic intelligence service officer here. I worked for about 20 years for the city health department and I was the commissioner uh, for about eight years. And the extent of the devastation is really very hard for people Uh, for anyone to get their minds around. There have been probably more than 16 or 17,000 deaths from coronavirus in less than two months. For comparison, in the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic, there were 30,000 reported deaths in two years. So this is an unprecedented problem. And I, I think all of us New Yorkers will, for the rest of our lives, just remember the ambulances we've heard day and night and knowing that each of those is someone's life, someone's story, someone's tragedy. That's why it's so important that we work together to limit the harms that coronavirus causes. This episode is about recovery. And so we're in the midst of the worst pandemic since the Spanish flu a century ago. How do we think about coming back from something this devastating. What does recovery look like and how do we get there? Well, um, first thing to understand is sheltering at home is only half of the equation. The other half is strengthening our health and public health systems so that when we begin to come out again, we can prevent another explosion of cases. That means strengthening our healthcare system so that Health workers aren't at such risk of infection. No health worker should get infected. And it means strengthening our public health system so we can box in COVID with testing, isolation, contact tracing, and quarantine. If we can get the four corners of that box right, we can reduce the risk, we can limit the spread of cases and clusters of COVID, and increase our ability to go out. But it's not going to be going back to normal it's going to be to a new normal. A new normal where people who have underlying health conditions and the elderly will need to shelter in place for longer. A new normal where we may need to use hand sanitizer anytime we go into a building. A new normal where we may be using face masks for some time to protect others and ourselves. A new normal where we'll have to be sure not to go out if we're sick, even slightly sick, because we may be spreading illness to others. And that's something that's hard to understand. This isn't about necessarily making sure that 
uh, we're safe. It's about collectively making sure we're all safe by taking measures that will protect each of us. We're at very different places in this pandemic in, at different times. And uh, what we see is parts of the U.S. and parts of the world haven't yet had a problem. We can't predict what the future is going to be, but we know that there is essentially no immunity in the population. We don't know if the virus will behave differently in different climates or different weather, but we can't count on it. What's the hardest part of those four aspects that you mentioned, do you think, to get right? I think all four of the aspects are challenging. Testing, we're still weeks or months behind having enough tests throughout the U.S. In terms of isolation, we're still not doing what we need to do to protect healthcare workers. We need to provide an option for people who cannot be safely isolated at home to safely and comfortably isolate somewhere else, whether it's a hotel or a dormitory, and not risk getting others sick. We also need to protect our nursing homes. So isolation has challenges. Contact tracing is going to require a large core of contact tracers reaching out to people and um, the public understanding that this is a warning service. This is a way of alerting them so they don't make their family and friends sick avoidably. And quarantine can be challenging. So coming up with community supports for people who are under quarantine will be important. All four corners of that box are important. And if any one of them is weak, the virus can get out and spread widely. I like the way Dr. Frieden doesn't just tell us what we must do. He explains in simple, clear ways why we need to do it. I agree, Claudia. And after this break, I talk to him about the disparities between the global North and South. As the pandemic spreads, it's complicated and scary. But first, here's Amy Neal, Senior Vice President and Global Lead for MasterCard StartPath. So StartPath is MasterCard's startup engagement program. We work with startup companies from right across the globe. And our goal is to select the best and brightest, slightly later stage companies and engage them with MasterCard's broad network, broad ecosystem. We have about 200 startups that we've worked with over the past six years and with whom we've built enduring relationships. One of the things that has meant in terms of the crisis is that we have this amazing portfolio of companies that we're able to engage very, very quickly to solve some major challenges. We have seen some fantastic examples of companies that we've worked with pivoting their own solutions to address the crisis. So we have an Israeli company called Voca AI, and Voca basically harnesses artificial intelligence to create natural sounding, um, empathetic, automated customer services conversations. That's what they've always done. In response to COVID, they've teamed up with Carnegie Mellon University to deploy their expertise and start collecting voice samples from COVID-19 patients. And what they're doing is looking at these models and seeing whether these models can actually be used to detect speech signals of the infection in the human voice. So they never anticipated that they would be a company operating in um, the medical or healthcare space, and yet they've been able to pivot very quickly to take their technologies and solutions and pivot them to something that could be incredibly valuable for us as we think about how we detect this virus going forward. 
Another example I would provide is a Brazilian company, ID Wall. So ID Wall is all about ID verification for onboarding new financial services customers. You need to demonstrate you are who you say you are. ID Wall has pivoted that solution to enable telemedicine. So they're now able to verify registered medical practitioners are who they say they are in order that for them to deliver telemedicine um, medical services at distance over digital. So I think for what we're currently experiencing, speed has been the underpinning. The impact has happened so quickly, but the response is happening incredibly quickly as well. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Tom Frieden. Does it feel like to you that countries that aren't as well off, but that have very recent experience with infectious disease might in some way be better prepared than the more developed West? It's been interesting to see in many of the countries where we work in Africa, contact tracing is much better understood than it is in the U.S., because it is something that we still do in the U.S., but not much, because we don't have much tuberculosis here anymore, and um, it's not done perhaps as extensively for sexually transmitted diseases and HIV and measles and other diseases as it might be here. Uh, but in Liberia, Nigeria, many other countries in Africa, they've been dealing with Ebola or Lassa fever or typhoid or other problems where they have to do contact tracing quite regularly. In fact, I was uh, just seeing that Liberia, with a population of roughly half of uh, New York's, uh, was hiring 6,000 contact tracers and identifying uh, large numbers of contacts for each case so they could try to contain it. So thinking about the other areas in the world that you work in, are there any cautionary tales from there or indeed anything that you've seen that could be implemented in the West as well? One of the real risks is a sense of false confidence that it's not going to come here. And I worry about parts of the U.S. or parts of the world that are feeling like, like they may be immune to this. And it may be that for some time they avoid severe illness. But what New York's experience should uh, serve as is a warning to any place in the world of how devastating this virus can be. Even with the terrible death and devastation that's happened here so far, if we hadn't sheltered in place when we did, it would have been twice as worse, and it could get much worse as we come back out. So I think the cautionary tale is uh, the need to take this virus very seriously. There's no such thing as overreacting to COVID-19. There's plenty of ways to react inappropriately, but there's no such thing as overreacting to it, given how serious the threat is. On the other hand, there's some really important lessons from around the world. We've seen countries put in excellent services for people who are being isolated or quarantined that encourage them to stay separate. And it's good for them, it's good for their families, it's good for the community. We've seen examples from around the world of scaling up the traditional tried and true contact tracing, where people go talk to patients who are ill and help them to warn the people who uh, may have been exposed so that they don't end up making others sick. So I do think we're learning about the virus, we're learning about what works to confront it, and that really is a global community of learning. I'm optimistic that given the devastation 
this virus is causing, the world is going to learn a lesson and say, we have to make sure that we take off the table the possibility that something preventable like this will happen in the future. Uh, my organization, Resolve to Save Lives, has been working for years to try to get resources to reduce the possibility of an epidemic emerging from Africa or Asia or elsewhere and spreading worldwide. And we've made progress, but nothing like the progress that's needed. It is inevitable that there will be another serious outbreak. What's not inevitable is that we will continue to be so woefully underprepared as a world. I'm optimistic, though, that people recognize now that the costs of not doing that are astronomical, and we have to close those gaps for all of our sake. It's the right thing to do, and it's also the prudent thing to do. We asked Dr. Frieden why, despite all sorts of warnings, many people and countries seem caught unprepared for the pandemic. I think we do suffer from a short-termism that because of whether it's political timeframes or the way our minds work, thinking about what will be good for us in the medium to long term doesn't come naturally. Uh, there's a fancy term for this in economics called hyperbolic discounting, where we undervalue results that are in the future uh, compared to what may happen tomorrow. If you were told, for example, if you smoke, you have a 30% chance of dying tomorrow, you'd probably quit. Uh, but because that chance of dying is spread out over the next 10 or 20 years, you're much less likely to quit. In the same way, if we said, we know there's a terrible pandemic, another one coming tomorrow, we would put all of our resources into it. Therefore, I think we, we really have to counteract some of the ways both our brains and our political system are inclined to work. But that's what good governance is about. That's what global solidarity is about. That's what activism can promote. Claudia, Dr. Frieden's optimism reminds me of the way you often look at tough challenges as a job to be done. That's right, Didi. Even in the most personal and challenging circumstances like the one I am feeling with my mother right now, we just have to get going. But getting the work done also means understanding the full story, informed optimism, informed possibilism. For that, you spoke to the frontline workers in Africa. Yes, in Cameroon and Kenya, all three introduced to us by One Young World. Achaleke Christian is in Cameroon, and I reached him in his office that he's turned into a mini factory for producing hand sanitizer. Well, uh, it's a very scary moment uh, in the sense that people are panicking. And um, so far we have 1,000 plus cases. So there's a lot of fear and uh, there's a lot of issues of misinformation. And uh, some people are afraid to go to the hospital. Achaleke is a 26-year-old youth organizer. Actually, he's a former gang member and street fighter. His own personal story is incredible. He then became someone who fights for peace and works with former violent extremists. As coronavirus began to spread around the world, he focused all his efforts on trying to contain the virus. Hand sanitizer was in short supply and very expensive. So he went onto the World Health Organization website and found the recipe. Our office decided to uh, form a coalition where we um, reached out to young people who are 
health practitioners at different levels, pharmacies, uh, medical doctors and uh, lab scientists and um, safety and uh, water hygiene and sanitation engineers together to see how we could be able to produce these hand sanitizers and give to communities for free because we realized that it was not only us who could not purchase these uh, preventive materials but local communities the ones who don't have access to resources find it very difficult and it created some kind of panic and fear so we decided then to step in by creating a, a rapid response laboratory where we were producing these hand sanitizers. People are, are very excited and happy to see that young people came together to respond and uh, young people from different walks of life. And today we have been able to mobilize also volunteers using online platform. We have about 350 volunteers who some come and support to do labeling of bottles and some are currently working on a, a training to see how we can work on misinformation and uh, you know try to sensitize more people using online platforms and, and all of that. So I mean, this has been what we have been doing. On Saturday, we realized that we had produced uh, 10,000 bottles of these hand sanitizers, which is uh, a big thing for us. Achaleke has been working in cities, but if you think that's hard work, his colleague Mark Andele is working in the southwest part of Cameroon, which has been the scene of a separatist rebellion, what Mark calls the crisis. He told me about people living in bushes. Claudia, their homes have been burnt down. And if that isn't enough, they're now facing the global pandemic. We are carrying out rapid response in the hard-to-reach areas in the southwest region where it has been highly hit by the crisis. So we produce um, clean emergency delivery kits and we carry out consultations, mobile health clinics in those areas where internally displaced people have created uh, new communities in, in bushes. And tell me why those areas are in such need. Due to the crisis, their houses have been, their villages have been burned down. So some of them don't have families in uh, other cities. So they are forced to move into bushes for them to set up like new houses there in the bushes. That's the only option they have. So it's difficult for them. Uh, yeah, it's it's a tough time. But um, as a humanitarian. With the zeal to always help out, I just had to move. And even though there is much pressure and much um, fear out, out there, we just had to do what we have to do to, to help out in our own small way. Iri spoke to Emma Ngazia from a health center in Kabira, the crowded slum in Nairobi. Emma is part of a program called Shining Hope for Communities, Shofko for short which even before the pandemic has been putting local health workers in the community. She describes the same fears and panic as in Cameroon, and also the inspiring community actions leading the way to recovery, and an unexpected but welcome side effect of the increased hand washing. For the first time in healthcare, I feel like the power to manage disease, the power to be able to arrest the spread of disease is moving from healthcare providers to communities. And for me, that is really huge because 
all the time in the past it's been the healthcare provider who has all the power about what to do, when to do, but this time we are empowering the community members and it's coming in handy. It is the most powerful tool we have currently as Shofco because they are trusted more, they're known in the community and therefore they are able to pass the information better than we would at facility level. We've had them go door to door, we've had them distribute soaps that have been donated, we've had them demonstrate hand washing, they've been able to give us data that influences even other things like people living with disabilities, the pregnant mothers at home, and just help us map the very high risk areas in the community. For the first time with the hand washing that comes with COVID, there's been marked increase in wash activities in the urban informal settlement. I'm experiencing less and lesser cases of diarrhea cases reporting to the facilities. Stronger basic health services have always been central to the Global Gold City. And we can see why now. It is striking, as Emma reports, that the sanitary measures, WASH, as we call them in developing language, adopted to curve COVID are reducing other maladies among the urban poor in Nairobi slums. So the question is, can we keep these advances after the pandemic? Iri, after listening to all this, I think that we have to recognize how this pandemic is hitting like in waves. It's like one tsunami that comes in one continent and then goes to the other and then goes to the other and then goes to the other. And we have not seen really how many waves and how strong they will continue being. So it is quite hard to see countries and continents like Latin America and Africa just starting to get this pandemic and not being able yet mm. to get the playbook and to get the best practices. So I would love to see more of that. What we were talking in the last episode is turn up the volume, tune it up, make sure that people understand how serious this is and that we can get going. I'm absolutely really, really clear that there is an aspect of this pandemic that is showing us how it's not only horrendous, this is a really, really terrifying virus. This is the worst thing I've ever lived in my life. And you know me, I'm the optimist of the century, but this is really horrendous. It's like a horror mm. movie that has no ending. But what I can see is that this is humanizing us. This is getting people to be by far more humble. We're seeing the incredible side of like, oh my God, I really didn't need to be working in an office so much. This is working for me or look at the sky, it's green and you know, we have more clear skies than ever before. So it's humanizing us and putting us all in the same area, but it is not the same boat. It is the same mm. storm. And for some people, it is more comfortable storm than for others. And I think that the other part that we have to be looking at, Edi, how incredibly clear inequalities will be starting to surface for those that are affected the most. And I can tell you in America, the work that I do here with the U.S. Hispanics, again and again, I go back to how Hispanics are disproportionately affected with the highest mortality index, with the highest lost jobs, incomes, and salaries because the industries where we work and we're the hardest, more disproportionately exposed because we're the ones that are running the country, delivering the food, working in hospitals and so on. So I think that there's a lot of global reflection that has to be done about how we need to really 
think about what will be the world after COVID. Exactly what you were just saying there. I think that we're all in the same storm. Some of us are weathering it in super yachts and others are weathering it in rafts on the sea that risk being broken apart. And we're going to build on this in the next episode when we talk about building back better and the inequalities that we are facing. I was so struck, Claudia, by listening to President Macron the other day, who saw COVID-19 as an existential threat to humanity. He thinks it will change the very nature of globalization and the structure of international capitalism. And actually, he took a very global goals cast view by saying that in recent years, globalization has increased inequalities in developed countries. So exactly what you were talking about there. He said that it was very clear that the kind of globalization that we've taken for granted was reaching the end of its cycle because it was undermining democracy. The other thing I wanted to mention was, I think we've had the sledgehammer. So I really like this idea of the hammer and the dance. 30% of the world was locked down. So we've had the sledgehammer in parts of the world. And for those parts, now it's the dance. So you can keep the virus contained. You can't get rid of it, right? Dr. Frieden described it to us as boxing it in with his four steps, test, isolate, trace, and quarantine. So we could call it Dr. Frieden's box step. But I think that was fascinating. And the only thing keeping me going is that there is going to be some kind of new normal. While it's not gonna be normal, it's definitely going to be new. The other thing that I wanna introduce is the World Food Program, who has warned that as a result of COVID-19, we could be facing a famine of biblical proportions. And that is not just for countries that import food. That is extreme hunger in places yep. like the United States and with people like exactly those people that you are working with. That's correct. And in America, you have um, only 25% of pork production. So the farmers and the people that are producing the goods are getting infected and those quarantines. And so I do see a cycle that we have to break. And what gets me excited, Edie, I think, is that since that last conversation I had with my mom, moving us from fear to action, moving us from fear to hope. So while we're in this and really scared, because it's the scariest time that I think that everyone uh, of our like living generations has seen. But I think that for any one of us, this is the scariest thing, but we have to move from fear to action and from fear to hope. And I think that that's the power of looking at advancing the spirit, like displaying, making, muscling the spirit, the human spirit to see like, I know I'm scared and nevertheless, I have to look two steps ahead. And that's where the word recovery comes so much into mind. I had a conversation today with Jack Hidari, Jack Hidari, who I hope oh, we yeah. can introduce in the next episode, who was talking about like rethinking the future, rethinking what kind of an economy we could create. It's almost like reshaping the new economy so that we can come back back with that different set of rules and talking about like the type of work that we will do, the type of education that we have to have, the type of healthcare system that we have to have. And if we can actually start looking at building back better, I hope that we can also understand that recovery is a word that has a heavy connotation if we want to do it right. And we need a plan. And I hope that we can bring to the Global Goals Cast all those people that are clever enough to be in a room and start looking at how does recovery 
recovery is constructed so that we can get there, particularly for those that need to recover the most. It's really interesting what's happened to trust within COVID-19. What this episode showed for me is that the local community networks that are being set up as a result of COVID-19, whether it is my WhatsApp group in London, bringing me much closer with my neighbors, I'm going to pharmacies for my neighbors, I'm doing shopping for my neighbors who cannot leave their houses, to the people in Kibera, in the Kibera slums who are going out and helping other people wash their hands more, it's incredible to see it in action. And I do think that that idea of local communities, the power of trust, that will help Dr. Frieden's box step work even better. Edie, you have something to show off. And this is a time of darkness that could do with a little sparkle. <laughs> so I was on the Citizens Climate Lobby podcast, and it was an incredible episode actually talking, it was supposed to be talking about climate grief. So that feeling that we feel helplessness turning into action around climate change. It ended up comparing the grief around climate change to the grief that we're feeling around COVID-19. And it was an incredibly powerful experience for me to be part of it. And actually, I was just listening to the episode before coming on today, and it's incredible. It's a bunch of people talking about the grief, the really deep feelings that they have every day dealing with COVID-19 and also comparing that to what we think about climate change and feeling an action towards that. You can listen at citizensclimatelobby.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Edie, every episode from the very beginning, we have our section of facts and actions never so relevant than now. So we give you three facts that you can take on and show off with whomever you can show off in a Zoom meeting uh, and just like mm -hmm. demonstrate that you know what you're talking about on this area and three actions that you can take. This episode from our partners, the World Food Program, WFP. We've got Jonathan Rivers, who's the head of World Food Program's Hunger Monitoring Unit. They are scaling up in a hurry to respond to the pandemic. Fact number one. Prior to the emergence of COVID-19, 2020 was already anticipated to be a year of unprecedented humanitarian crises. Consider these numbers for one second. 821 million people, or one person out of every nine, goes to bed hungry every night. In 2019 alone, 135 million people, up from 113 million the year prior, experienced acute food insecurity. And by acute food insecurity, I mean their lives or their livelihoods were in immediate danger. Of the that 135 million, 77 million were food insecure due to conflict. 34 million were food insecure due to climate change. And an additional 24 million were food insecure due to economic crises. And let me remind, this was before COVID-19. 
Fact number two, WFP expects the COVID-19 pandemic to disrupt global supply chains and have significant livelihood impacts in countries across the world, ultimately exacerbating what is already a worrying food security situation. In fact, WFP estimates that in 2020, just due to COVID-19, we will see another 130 million people experience acute food insecurity on top of the 135 million people identified as vulnerable in 2019. So in other words, the number of severely food insecure is likely to double as a result of COVID-19. Fact number three, witnessing the multitude of ever-changing consequences of this pandemic, good quality data is now more than ever a vital priority. Right now, WFP is continuously monitoring supply chain, livelihood, and food security impacts of COVID-19 in real time across 17 countries. Soon, we'll be expanding this level of monitoring to more than 30 countries where WFP expects the impact of COVID-19 to be greatest. These efforts to capture robust, timely data allow us to provide accessible information to support the strategic priorities of the Global Humanitarian Response Plan. This data will also be accessible and available as a global public good to support everyone who is working to address COVID-19 across the world, including governments and civil society. These monitoring systems will not only allow WFP and our partners to save lives and livelihoods in the short term, but they will also help facilitate and provide the evidence base for a better and stronger recovery longer term. And here are three concrete actions to support the global COVID-19 response. First, protect the vulnerable and save lives. In practice, this can be things as simple as not panic buying. Panic buying can disrupt supply chains, drive commodity prices up, and make it difficult for the poor and vulnerable in your community to access the goods and services that they need. This could also mean simply checking in with those at risk in your community to ensure that their essential needs are met. If your focus is more global, then download WFP's Share the Meal application. Through this application, a donation of just 50 cents can feed one child for an entire day. If many people do this, it can have a very big impact. Second, do what you can to support local livelihoods. Where possible, buy locally, reach out and support your local businesses. And if you're thinking of donating to various organizations or charities, check that these donations go to organizations who are empowering local livelihoods. Third, join our global effort to respond to COVID-19 in the poorest and most vulnerable countries around the world. This has already brought a range of key humanitarian organizations and civil society together. Learn more about the lands and whether it's the sharing of key information through your social media or exploring how your community or company can support, every voice and every action counts. Well, thanks to WFP for those facts and actions and thank you for our guest on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Please do like, subscribe, and share and follow us on social media at Global Goalscast. Stay safe, stay home, stay strong and wash your hands. See you next time. Bye. Global Goalscast was hosted by Edie Lush and Claudia Romo Edelman. We are editorial gurued by Mike Oreskes. Editing and sound production by Simon James. Our operations director is Michelle Kuprider and our interns, Brittany Segura, Taryn Reamy, and Dylan Potts. Music in this episode was courtesy of Universal Production Music, one of the world's leading production music companies, creating and licensing music for film, television, advertising, broadcast, and other media, including podcasts. Original music by Neil Hale, Angelica Garcia, Simon James, Katie Crone, and Andrew Phillips. 
This episode is brought to you by MasterCard, creating scalable solutions for sustainable and inclusive economic growth. Thanks also to CBS News Digital and to BSR, working for a just and sustainable world. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts.